Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nasty, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring Fantasy Flight Games' Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. For today's episode, we want to take you through a primer on how to evaluate cards and build effective decks. If you're just starting out playing Arkham Horror, or if you're looking to up your game, we hope that you'll find this episode pretty helpful. Yeah, this is a game that definitely can seem sort of overwhelming um, for newer players, just because there are, the, the rules are fairly complicated. There's a lot of different cards to pick when you're trying to build a deck. And, you know, the game is designed to be sort of hard and, and, and difficult, depending on what scenario you're playing. So uh, we do often have people that are that are new at the game sort of having a lot of trouble with, like, Knight of the Zealot and asking, you know, uh, what can I do to, to have things go more smoothly and to be able to get through these scenarios? So we, uh, we thought we'd try to help if we can. Yeah, absolutely. And to do that, I think we kind of want to first start with what is important in Arkham Horror? That is to say, what is a deck supposed to do in this game? Right. Yeah. And there's there's really, there's kind of three basic categories, um, kind of roughly in order of how important they are. The first thing that's really important is investigating, is is the ability to get clues, right? Because most scenarios, you need clues to, uh, to advance, or you need clues to open up new locations or, or a variety of other things. So getting clues is really important. And in terms of how you're trying to get clues by, by using cards, um, obviously you can usually take investigate actions, uh, to get clues at locations that have clues, which is good. So being able to pass those tests is good. Anything that lets you get more than one clue at a time when you investigate is also really good because it makes your actions more efficient. And then lastly, it's also really good to discover clues without investigating because sometimes you have locations where investigating has some kind of punishment attached to it, or there's like an extremely high shroud value where it's very hard to investigate, so all three of those things are like definitely good to be able to do. Yeah, definitely. So I think the next next category would be being able to fight or evade. Uh, that is to say, the ability to deal with enemies. Enemies will be coming uh, from the encounter deck. They'll be engaging you and they'll be throwing a wrench in your plans to investigate and win the game. Yeah, and th- th- there's a couple of scenarios like the Miskatonic Museum where there's not enemies in the encounter deck, but... Uh, the vast majority of scenarios, there's roughly like a consistent pace of enemies coming through that you have to deal with. So this is this is something that you pretty much always need to handle. Yeah, for sure. So I think that the ability to deal with enemies, we're talking about ways to deal extra damage uh, with fight actions to kill enemies. That would be primarily through the use of weapons, through the use of events that might be able to deal some damage to enemies. Passing fight tests is generally the way that you're going to be doing this. There will be weapons that will give you those. So you can consistently hit enemies, yeah. Right, so you can pump out that damage. Dealing damage to enemies without fight actions, like I was saying, with event cards, sometimes will allow you to do this. Successfully evading enemies is another way to deal with enemies. Basically, you're able to take an evade action, and then you kind of trip them up for a whole turn. And they can't engage you or your friends, usually. And you'll be able to kind of, what, what some people refer to as evade tanking, you can kind of use your actions to mitigate their ability to affect you and your friends. Yeah, and, and in most cases, outside of like Vengeance Enemies and Forgotten Age, usually you'd rather kill something than evade it, but evading can be okay in certain situations. 
It's all about how many actions you have to commit to dealing with the enemy. Like, if you can evade it and leave the location, so you spent one action dealing with it, instead of, like, having to hit it three times, that's when you, like, go towards evading over fighting. Yeah. If it's not a hunter and it doesn't have doom on it or something, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we'll talk about how to construct decks and things, because maybe some investigators will want to evade more things and they'll gain benefits from that. But for primarily, I think that it's better to fight an enemy and get them out of the way rather than to kind of temporarily dismiss them, so to speak. Yeah, in most cases. Yeah. And then the the last category is just kind of other general stuff that help accelerate your setup. Um, so like things like drawing cards or getting resources or things that help you like move around the map faster to help save your actions. And then um, some cards that help you like mitigate or prevent um, some of the bad stuff that's going to get thrown at you, like doom or treacheries or agenda effects, whatever. Yeah, like that that stuff is definitely helpful. But, you know, the first thing getting clues is something that directly helps you get to the end of the game. Handling enemies is kind of an extremely necessary kind of corollary to that. And often you have to kill a boss to to advance. So that's kind of important for that reason, too. Um, this third category of just sort of acceleration and, and mitigation is definitely really good, but it's not, it doesn't directly help you win the game, right? So you kind of have to be careful about how much of your deck you devote to things in this category. Like, you, you don't want to prioritize this over the other two things most of the time. Right, right, right. So the different, let's talk about like the different ways that cards can help you do these things, or sort of like the different ways that cards can can be played. So in this game, there's assets, which provide like a long-term benefit by giving you like a a boost to one of your skills or providing you with extra abilities or making your actions more efficient. So for instance, something like uh, machete increases your your strength when you use it for fight tests, which is usually what what you're doing. And it also lets you do extra damage in, you know, as long as it's not engaged with somebody else. So it, it, it both helps you pass tests and it makes those tests do uh, extra damage. So like, that's a that's like a long term benefit. So assets are usually better if you get them early because you want to put them down and use them for the whole game. So you often mulligan for the important assets in your deck. Uh, on the other hand, they're kind of like a big upfront cost usually. And you could always lose them to like encounter deck treacheries or something like that. And because they're expensive, if you if you have too many in your deck, you might have trouble affording to play all of them. But assets are, are definitely good and important. So the other way to to help you further your game plan would be uh, events and skill cards. These usually provide a single-use benefit in, in a certain situation. Something like helping you pass a test you might commit a skill card to, or maybe even commit an event card to that will help you do so, or they might prevent something bad from happening. The con of this, however, is that most of the time events will be situational, and again, they're single use. So they're not assets where assets will stay out on the board, they will be um, in your game area providing you a constant effect, but they only provide you that one time, and then they're gone. Usually with events, they're often something that gives you some good action efficiency, like you play an event uh, and you'll get a net gain of money or cards or damage or something, or clues, which is usually what you're looking for when you're grabbing event same thing with skills a lot of skill cards will give you some extra effect if you pass the test or some of them if you fail the test to help you you know save save turns that you would otherwise have to spend drawing or getting money or whatever yeah and and we should mention some assets kind of blur the lines a little bit because some assets have a limited number of uses either with ammo or charges or something like that so they're really sort of like events that you can play four times or three times or something like that more than an asset that stays on the board forever. But, you know, it, it's still providing you a, a longer term benefit. 
And, and also the other thing to say about events is, is a lot of times events are going to let you do something that you couldn't otherwise do, like give you a kind of a single, for one action, you can sort of do something that normally is not within your deck's capabilities. So like I've got a plan is a card that, you know, seekers can play, which lets them do one really big attack, even if their deck is normally has no other cards in it that are focused on attacking or something like working a hunch or drawn to the flame or scene of the crime is something that like a fighting character might play to be able to like occasionally pick up a couple of clues when they really need to. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of sort of want that mix, right? You want to be able to do both of these things to some extent, again, getting back to investigating and or fighting and evading. If you have some of those panic button moments where you need that kind of a thing, then that's great to have. Yeah, it's kind of, it's not like you need, oh, your deck is supposed to be this percent assets and this percent skills and events. There's not like a hard rule like that, but there is kind of diminishing returns because if you play a lot of assets, then they're kind of competing against each other for your money and your actions to play them. If you're playing a lot of skills, you, you might not need that many. So you sort of want to strike a balance of picking the best from both categories. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so when you make a deck, usually you're going to try to focus on one of a couple of different roles. So you either try to focus on getting clues, or you try to focus on handling enemies, which usually means murdering them. Or sometimes you play kind of a flex or hybrid character that can do a bit of both. And, you know, any one of those roles are, are, are definitely useful. So in group play, you can have kind of a mix of specialists and generalists. Like if you have a three player group, maybe you're going to have three people that are pretty flexible. Maybe you're going to have one person that's dedicated to enemies, one person that's dedicated to clues, and a third person that's kind of able to do both. For solo play, you pretty much need to play a deck that can do both, at least at least a, a fair amount. Yeah. Um, but in a group, you have a little bit more flexibility to specialize if you want to. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that scales as well. I think that if, with two people, sometimes you might need, it might be better off as, as two generalists who can do a little bit of, of grabbing clues and also fighting things. Just because there aren't quite the range of encounter cards that you'll find in a three or four player game and because of that you guardians or or fighters might need to take time after they're all set up with all their assets and everything they might need to get some clues while they're not really doing anything yeah because you the enemies are not coming out of the encounter deck at quite the same rate right right so there's also a support decks is a concept that's been coming up lately um, where you could maybe make a deck that's like focused on healing or focused on giving cards to other players or giving them money or whatever. And I think we think they're fine as like a secondary part of your deck. Like some investigators definitely lean into it, but you still kind of want your deck to be able to get clues or deal with monsters. If you go pure support, you might find you have turns where you can't help as much uh, with like actually advancing towards completing the act. Yeah, there's usually enough work to be done getting clues and dealing with serious threats like enemies that usually everyone has to kind of pull their weight at least at least a fair amount in those in those areas. Uh, so th- that would be our recommendation is especially if you're a new player, don't try to do a deck that's solely based on those. But it's you know certainly if you're playing like Min or Carolyn or something, you could definitely have that as like a secondary theme as long as you're also able to be pretty good at getting clues or something like that. The guiding factor of this being. To win the game, you need to investigate, and the primary way that you lose the game is through encounter cards or by taking too long. Yeah, yeah. You either you either run out of time because you couldn't get clues fast enough, or you get overwhelmed by enemies, or you spend too much time dealing with enemies and other stuff that you're not able to get clues. So those are really the main threats. So once you've picked kind of the you know a role that you want to play, 
you really want to you want to put enough cards into your deck that are focused on that role that you can do a pretty good job of it, right? So, for instance, if you're if you're focusing on clues, you really want to build your deck so that almost always you can start investigating right away and consistently do it throughout the entire game. So, you don't want to put so few cards in your deck that help you get clues that you're really depending on finding a cup like one of two or three cards in your opening hand. You want to have enough cards like magnifying glasses, uh, which give you a bonus to your intellect when you're investigating, or um, allies that give you a bonus to intellect, or cards that help you get clues other ways. You want to have enough of those cards that you will generally find enough of them right at the beginning to get started, and you'll have like a steady flow of them throughout the game. So you kind of start with those types of cards, and then you fill in the other stuff like cards that let you draw other cards, or that help you do kind of less, uh, more situational things. You kind of fill those in as you have room. Yeah, and I think each of the card types um, you can really kind of custom tailor. That's kind of the best part about the game, right? You can custom tailor your deck to how you want to play it in terms of looking for cards that can really help you in a lot of different situations. There are skill cards that allow you to do that, something like Unexpected Courage that just provides you a flat bonus for any sort of test that you're trying to do, or something like Ward of Protection where you can just kind of mitigate Almost any treachery card coming off of the encounter deck, or something like Lucky that helps you react to not doing so great on a test. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, when you when you're looking at these types of cards that are sort of um, that are they're not directly focused on your role, or really really any cards, I guess. Yeah, you're looking for cards that provide as high an impact as possible for their total cost, including you know the cost of using up a deck slot to include them the cost of spending an action to play them, the resource cost of playing them, all of that stuff, you kind of take all that into account and you try to find cards that help a lot relative to that. So going back to Magnifying Glass for a second, the reason it's a very good card is, so it's a, it's an asset, it takes up a hand slot, uh, You can it's fast, so you don't have to spend an action to play it. It only costs one resource to play and it gives you plus one intellect while you're investigating. So Seekers are investigating a lot, so that plus one intellect is helping very frequently. The cost of playing it is is pretty low. It doesn't cost you an action, it only costs one resource. So that's like a great card at the beginning of the game. You probably still play it even if you get it later in the game. That's the, the kind of card that you sort of want to, to think about. On the other hand, um, you know, if you think about a card like like scrying as for an example, definitely could be helpful. So scrying is a it's a, a spell that when you use it, you get to look at the top three cards of uh, a player's deck or the encounter deck. Usually you look at the encounter deck and rearrange them. And the use case for it is usually like rearranging cards so that the treacheries and enemies in the encounter deck go to the people who are best able to handle them, which is cool. But this is just a card that, you know, stuff about who's drawing which encounter card, usually you can kind of play around with that or just see what happens and deal with it afterwards. You don't really need a card specifically to rearrange those. You need cards to help you get clues fast enough to win the game. So a card like Scrying, while it might be helpful, a lot of times you just, you don't quite have room in your deck for it because there's other cards that are more important yeah exactly and kind of going off that i think that there there are cards i mean you will always need specific resources to play the game you will always need resources for one to pay for your cards you'll always need some way to draw cards semi-reliably so you can kind of further your game plan and get deeper into your deck so and i think that it's it's prudent to stress how effective drawing cards is here because it's so important for you if you don't find your assets let's say at the beginning of the game or to further your game plan in that maybe you're doing more damage with you know events 
So since you have that one time, you only have them as one time use cards, you might need to search for more in your deck. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that is by drawing. Even though there is a basic action where you can draw a card, it's so useful to be able to cycle through your deck faster to get to the what you need faster. Yeah, and, and drawing is especially good in this game compared to other card games because every card has kind of a second way to use it by just committing it to a test to get the icons. Not not every card. Some cards have no icons, but most cards do. So drawing cards is sort of better than it seems because even if you're not playing the cards, you can still use them by committing them. There is some danger in drawing, of course, though, because there could be weaknesses in there. Yeah, that's definitely true. But I think that new players, I think, tend to be, and and new players and maybe other players as well, tend to be more scared of weaknesses than they probably really should be. I mean, your weakness is in your deck. You're probably going to find it eventually, unless it's something really horrible. I mean, there might be some times that are worse than others to draw it, but usually you don't want to be so scared of that that you don't draw cards because you need cards. So that's that's why something like Mr. Rook, which uh, lets you look at the top uh, nine cards of your deck and definitely no other number of cards, uh, and pick a card out of them and put it in your hand, but you also have to take any weaknesses that you find. That's why that's like an excellent card, because getting a weakness out of your deck without having to waste an action drawing it is actually pretty great. So basically just don't worry about weaknesses as much as you probably are, even though they can feel really bad when you draw them. Yeah, exactly. And and if that's the case, like you kind of know what weaknesses you have, right? When you're drawing cards, you kind of want to keep in mind when you want to draw cards, if there are cards in your deck that affect your hand, maybe. Maybe there are cards that make you discard to a certain number of cards or something like that. You kind of want to keep that in mind, but it's not like a hard stop. You never you never want to stop drawing cards, essentially. Yeah, it, it changes a little bit if you have, like, for instance, like Silver Twilight Acolyte is like a very bad weakness, which if you draw it last action and no one is around to deal with it, it can just like add a doom, which is really bad. So you do have to change your calculations a little bit if there's something like that going on. But most of the time, yeah, don't, don't be super scared of your weakness. You're going to find it eventually and just kind of deal with it. Just like life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, and, and just looking at other cards. So when you're filling in those kind of extra slots of cards that help you in some situations, in, in a broad variety of situations, so cards like Unexpected Courage, uh, Ward of Protection, Lucky, the reason those cards are all good is because they help out a lot in a really wide variety of situations. Like Unexpected Courage, you can commit to any test for you or another investigator at your location, and it just gives you plus two symbols. Word of Protection works on any bad, uh, any bad treachery coming out of the encounter deck. Uh, Lucky, like Unexpected Courage, you know, helps you pass just about any test. So those cards are really good because they're so broad. Uh, a lot of other cards that you might think about putting in those slots, they're just not going to work for you as much. You're going to be holding them in hand, and you're not going to find a time to use them, and you're eventually just going to commit them for like less than an Unexpected Courage. Yeah, and exactly. And while I think drawing cards can kind of mitigate the situational aspect of some cards, you really kind of want to think about your cards as, is this worth a slot in my deck? Because technically that's a resource to you too, right? You have, you have for the most part, 30 cards in your deck, and you want them all to be helpful to you in some way. So when you're looking to draw a card, you're thinking, okay, this card is in my hand. Is this really going to help me in a wide variety of situations, or am I going to need to draw past it, and is it going to kind of sit and, and rot, so to speak, in my hand for a while? Yeah, that, that's exactly how to think about it. Like, when we say that a card is, like, not really good or, or is sort of bad, we, we usually don't mean that, like, it's actually a bad card, that, like, it won't help you. We just mean that generally it's worse than playing another, like, pretty good skill card or another, you know, a copy of, like, Cash or something, which already isn't that great. Like, usually it's just, it's not quite worth one of your precious 30 deck slots. But but going off a little bit what you said, so 
cards that maybe are kind of situational but also have good sets of icons on them, those can actually be pretty good to play. So if you look at a card like Logical Reasoning, which is a seeker card that has two will icons on it, and you can play it to either heal two horror or get rid of a, is it a terror uh, card? Yes, it's a terror. Yeah. So like healing two horror is something that you don't always need to do, but you, you know, you need it sometimes. And committing for two will, will icons is also pretty good. So between those two sort of modes, it becomes a pretty flexible card that you usually will be happy to have. Similarly, Waylay is a survivor card that has two agility icons on it, and you can play it against an exhausted enemy to do an agility test against their evade value. And if you succeed, you, I, you, they get discarded, right? You don't actually defeat them, but they get discarded. No, you defeat them. Okay, you defeat them. But it basically lets you kill an exhausted enemy by evading it again. And that's not something you always need to do because it is kind of expensive, but it's something that occasionally is really great. And if you don't need to do that, you can just commit it for double agility. So cards like that are kind of an, ex- an exception because they're not as situational as they look because they have good icons on them. Yeah, so other cards that are good to fill in there are ones that will give you uh, additional benefit for stuff you're doing already or things that help accelerate getting through your deck or getting resources that you need in order to get your good cards down. So there's cards like uh, Drawing Thin is the the hot topic from the recent set uh, where you can do a test and control getting an extra card uh, or two resources when you do the test by making the test harder. There's other things like Lucky Cigarette Case, which is like when you succeed by two, you get to draw a card, and succeeding by two happens a lot, uh, especially if you like are committing to an important test and then you draw the zero and you're like, oh well, I guess I passed by four. Um, cards like that that just give you like you play that play it as an asset and you get a free benefit from it like a couple times during the game to help you draw cards or get money. Right, right. It's important to note though that things like resources does have like diminishing returns on it for the most part. Like if you have a pile of like 15 resources but nothing to spend it on by the end of the game then that means you probably wasted something getting those resources for the most part if it wasn't like a passive thing so you keep that in mind if you don't end the game on exactly zero resources then uh you you suck and you gotta get good (laughs) (laughs) no unless you're preston (laughs) yeah yeah. you're supposed to be you're supposed to end the game with zero resources one health one sandy remaining (laughs) no what no what (laughs) Then you haven't used all of your resources in a good way. That was that was like a Netrunner joke where like if you could end the game with like no clicks left and zero resources and the, the other side was about to win, it was like, wow, he's really good. Or like, like with stem hack or something, <laughs> you die if you yeah. didn't. Yeah, but uh, obviously it's very unpredictable to actually be able to do that. But sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you have a if you have a card that lets you spend money to increase your skills whenever you want or something, then that's like a pretty good way to use money. So in that case, getting extra money does directly translate into doing useful things. But if you don't have one of those cards, all you really need money for is to play other cards. So, you know, you only need as much money as it takes to do that. Yeah. And this is all kind of a general formula, right, for for how to look at prioritizing what cards to put in your deck. There are certain investigators and there are certain cards that can kind of blur those lines and change your priorities, uh, making you evaluate certain cards or card types a little bit differently than usual. There are some investigators that might benefit from playing different types of cards. For example, Daisy Walker wants to play with uh, tomes or books that, because she gets a free action off of it, can provide great benefit to you and your team by playing them. Min... Uh, and Silas are able to use skills more effectively than usual. Min can provide extra symbols, extra commit symbols off of skill cards that you play, and you can play them for other investigators. Silas can return skill cards to his hand that he might not have needed to commit. There are also other investigators that actually just use broad 
you know, card types, for example, like Safina, who can use, who makes great use of events. Her whole deck theme is, is to play a lot of events so that she can put events under herself and keep replaying copies of those events. There, it's a very powerful way to play Safina. But even in those cases where you have um, very specific, strong interactions between investigators and their chosen types of cards, you don't want to go too overboard with it because you're always trying to keep in mind that, yes, I do need to investigate or I need to help my my cluer or whoever is trying to investigate, investigate in the way of fighting or evading, things like that. Yeah, and even just, you know, if you look at like Daisy, for example, so Daisy benefits from having tomes because she gets a free action each turn to spend activating a tome, which is great, but that doesn't mean that you should just put every tome in your deck, even the ones that are not very good, because you really just want enough tomes in your deck that you consistently are able to use her ability and get value from it. That doesn't make it worthwhile to play tomes that don't really do very much just because you get a free action to use them. So 18 tomes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Daisy just like carrying an enormous bag of books around, like dragging it behind her. Yeah, that's not 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 super great. That no, well, I mean that is her theme, is she has a book bag to store all those books. But <laughs> that is, that uh, is she only only has so many spots for books. <laughs> I've never have you guys ever really thought about how like apparently in this game you can hold a book in each hand and like read both of them? Yeah. <laughs> like it's sort of hard to hold a book open with one hand and flip pages. Like I, this is this is why Daisy's a very skilled librarian, is because she's able to do this. When you go to school for library science, they kind of teach you how to do that. Once you once you get your, your bag of, of holding books, you can read five at once. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. That that's so scary and dangerous. I would never want to encounter someone that had the ability to read five books at once. <laughs> I, I I definitely feel like in this universe, libra- the library school is it's like uh, like Hogwarts or like Jedi Academy or something <laughs> where like people end up being either like dark librarians or light light side librarians. Like you either you either get driven evil and insane by like reading scary books or you like stay sort of good by reading the Bible or whatever. And like Daisy's a light side librarian. <laughs> yeah, but, good job, Daisy. You know, yeah. So there are also some decks that can be focused around like specific cards that like kind of alter the value of other cards that go into the deck. Um, a very popular one is Dark Horse, which is an asset, a survivor asset that you put into play. And when you don't have any resources, you get plus one to all of your skills. So this synergizes with other cards that benefit from you not having money, uh, like Fire Axe, you do extra damage when you don't have money. There's Madam Labranche. That's probably how you say it, right? Labranche. <laughs> uh, oh, didn't, I didn't accent it enough. Um, she uh, has an ability that when you don't have money, you can exhaust her to gain money. That way you have the ability to have money to play events or something when you need to. Oh no, but that, but that turns off your dark horse. Oh no. It does, but the idea is you, you turn it back on right away by like playing lucky or something. Anti-synergy. I do. I, I want to throw in my usual cranky disclaimer that Dark Horse is really not very good because getting plus one to all stats, unless you're like solo mode or something, is usually not great. Usually getting plus one to your main stat is great. Getting plus one to like your main stat and will is very good. Getting plus one to all stats is like not really any better than that. But anyway, we'll get, now that we've got that out of the way. Listeners, come um, at Dan. <laughs> fight him with the power of math. <laughs> if you love Dark Horse, come find me in real life and challenge me to a fight and I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll do it i've 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 i'm starting to lift weights i'm like gradually learning how to to use muscles i'm gonna gradually get good at fighting people and then if you come at me and you want to fight me over dark horse i will fight you 
just be careful. That person will bring a fire axe, so just be ready to handle that. But they'll have oh, no other resources. Uh, can I? <laughs> well, I'll I'll bring a I'll bring a Rubik's cube. So you know, which which of us is really going to win that fight? Um, you got one use of that. You can throw it at their head. <laughs> I'll I'll get on my bike and I'll ride away really fast. Uh, no, but and and there, there's other cards like this too, right? So even something kind of minor like Arcane Initiate, which is a it's an ally where once per turn you can exhaust it to look at the top three cards of your deck and if any of them is a spell you can take one spell from among those cards and add it to your hand so it's sort of a source of card draw if you have enough spells in your deck so like that that card is a pretty good draw engine if you can manage to have you know roughly a third of your deck or more be spells so it does slightly incentivize you to play spells that you otherwise wouldn't play again you wouldn't go overboard and put in like terrible spells but it's slightly a alters the priorities of like how you evaluate individual cards for what can make it into your deck or not yeah, and then there are cards that are they're a little more like dependent on being sort of like an engine, so to speak, in that you have like a certain combination of cards that allow you to execute your game plan even better. The card combination that I'm thinking of would be like uh, Yaudel, who's an upgraded ally. Uh, he costs one pip of experience to put in your deck. And the Desperate skills, um, it's a little bit more of a complicated process if you're new to deck building, but... This is kind of an interaction where you have the raw skill icons on your skill cards benefit you from being in the discard pile. Yaudel basically allows you a way to once per turn exhaust and use a card's commit icons on the side of it in a test, as if it were committed almost. So there are cards that allow you to execute this plan better that help you maintain a low sanity so that you can play these desperate skills, this whole cycle of skills basically needing you to be at three or less sanity to be able to commit them to skills. Yaddle kind of gets around that, but you could put it in things like Key of St. Hubert, uh, which allows you, it kind of reduces your max sanity cap and gives you other bonuses. And Meat Cleaver that allows you to ping yourself for sanity damage to get you there. There are also cards that allow you to discard desperate skills uh, for Yaddle so that you can just get them to be on top of the discard pile. Things like Cornered, that'll, that give you a flat bonus to tests that just let you discard. Or there are certain investigators that it might work better in, like Ashcan Pete, who kind of has a fast action to do that anyways. Or Wendy, who can discard a card from her hand and redraw a Chaos Token. So there, there are kind of like more engine effects like that too. Yeah, I guess the point we're trying to make here is uh, we, we've outlined these guidelines for making decks, but... They can immediately be thrown out sometimes with like weird combinations of cards or investigators might make you be like, oh, it doesn't make sense for this type of deck. So you, there's there's fun there's lots of like fun weird ways you can make like an effective deck around some theme that's like goes against the expectation. I couldn't think of what the stupid saying is, <laughs> but 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 yeah, yeah. And and our other and and our other standard disclaimer is you know we're we're framing all of this as sort of trying to help you get through scenarios and and win the game reliably. Obviously, that's not the only reason people play. If you want to make like a thematic deck where you're picking cards based on sort of like a narrative around your character or something, that's super cool. And uh, it, you know, you, you, it might make it harder to get through the scenario, but maybe that's what you're looking for. And in that case, you should feel free to ignore us completely because we're, we're, we're just examining things from one angle, which is how do you make your deck as, uh, as effective and functional as possible? And, and send us all your fiction, by the way. If you're doing that, I, I love that kind of thing. Ben loves that kind of thing. We love stories. We love stories regarding these investigators. Maybe not so much the novels, but like if you can, if you have really cool arcs for your characters and things, send them to us. Storing out the novels without even having read the update. <laughs> I even even I love that kind of thing. I just I just don't love it as much as uh, playing really good cards. So you know, 
Yeah, so one more thing we should talk about is how to make your deck consistent and like when to put two card two copies of a card in your deck versus one copy of a card in your deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I think most of the time you want to have two copies of a lot of your cards, especially yeah. like assets that you are important that you want to get out early on in the game, so you have a higher chance of getting them via mulligan or via draw. Generally, if a card is really good, you either if you either want to find it early or if you like having multiple copies of it, then it's great to have two copies of a new deck usually. Yeah, and like, I mean, specifically coming off of talking about Builderon cards, those are the cards that you want to find first, right? You want to find your assets like we mentioned earlier. You also want to find things that allow you to execute your game plan faster. Yeah, but sometimes there's cards where they're very, they're situational, like you expect to need them, you know, maybe once during a scenario, but not more than once. So for instance, a lot of scenarios end with a boss at the very end where you have to defeat a very strong enemy. So maybe a card like dodge, maybe you're thinking, well, if I put one dodge in my deck, by the time the end of the scenario comes around, I probably will have found my one copy of dodge and I probably will need it right at the end. Then that's like a very reasonable reason to play one copy. Or maybe um, there's other cards as well. So something like I'm out of here, which is a, an event that lets you immediately resign if there's a resign location in play, even if you're not at that location. You know, it's sort of good because it also has double agility icons on it. So maybe you're going to say, I'm going to play one of these because if I need it, it will be close to the end of the game. And I definitely don't want two, but one of them is fine because I can commit it. Um, and, and just generally, the more cards you're drawing, the more okay it is to have one ofs in your deck. Because if you're drawing everything in your deck, then it's sort of okay to maybe only have one copy of certain things. But if you're drawing fewer cards, then that kind of pushes you more towards consistency of having two copies of most of your cards. I think on average, you probably have like maybe like six-ish single cards in your deck and then like 24 you know, cards that are doubles, like 12 times two. That sounds about right, especially when you get into upgrading cards. You'll find cards that do what you want to do better, and then you might think about cycling your your level zero cards out. Yeah, like that's that's not like a strict rule or anything. Is like that six, but like that's just kind of how it turns out a lot of the time. So, but you don't have to you don't have to follow that. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned spending XP to to upgrade your deck. That's maybe like the last thing that we should talk about. So um, that, that's another thing that can feel kind of overwhelming at first because there are a lot of options. You have a certain amount of XP and you want to decide how to spend it. I think the best advice that, that we can really give is, you know, look at the cards that are available, evaluate them the same way that you would evaluate that you evaluated cards when you were building your deck in the first place in terms of finding cards that have high impact, that help you with your core role or that provide either very flexible and or very powerful help in like other specific situations. And just try to find where can you spend your XP to get the most value for it. So one 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 thing is um, cards that cost like five XP. I think those cards are very good, but it sort of seems like they often are not as much bang for your buck in terms of XP as maybe like cheaper cards. Do you guys is that more or less right? I think for the most part, like we like even when we talk about them in card reviews, it's like oh man, this card is very powerful, but it's five experience, and so it has to be it has to be impactful. So that when you draw it, it like makes you a lot stronger because you it's always possible you won't draw the card. Uh, so it might be better to like buy like three level two experience upgrades instead. So you have a better chance of benefiting from it. Yeah, I think there's might be some exceptions if you're specifically designing a deck with that upgraded card in mind. Like maybe that's the first thing you're going to get. But I think in general, there might be cheaper things you want to pick up first. Yeah, like if you're if you're building a deck around flamethrower, which is like a five XP two handed uh, weapon for guardians, it's like very powerful. Then yes, probably maybe that is the first thing that you want to upgrade. But in in general, like for for most characters, if you have a choice between getting like one copy of like a five XP card that's powerful, 
or adding like three one or two XP cards to your deck that are each very useful, you might want to sort of err on the on the side of getting cheaper cards, at least at first. Yeah, and and I mean again the reason for that being consistency, right? Like if you get if you get your first item being a shotgun as a guardian, and you have, you know, your machetes or you have your 32s as the other cards, and you really want to see that shotgun, you might consider first getting other things that will allow you to deal damage in different ways. You know, you could upgrade two beat cops instead of doing that. That way you can have more consistent damage uh, and find them easier. That is to say, there are ways and there's definitely strategy out there that you can go, you know, for big weapons and, and try to find them easier and stuff like that. It's just consistency is, is what's key there. Yeah, that that's a great example of the beat cop because that's like a very common early upgrade for guardians and people who are fighting who can do it because being able to exhaust it to do one damage to something without spending an action is just so very powerful because you can use that to immediately kill enemies with only one health. You can also, you know, normally with your weapon, you're going to do two damage per attack. But now if you have to kill something that has three health, now you can do that with one action plus using beat cop. It just really gives you a lot more flexibility and it's just a very good card. So like, yeah, I think in general, like spending two XP each on two upgraded beat cops is like a very, very good way to start as as a guardian rather than maybe going straight for something that's like a five XP really powerful card. But on the other hand, there are specific cards that actually allow you to pr- improve your consistency via drawing cards. For example, something like Cryptic Research in, in Seeker that costs a lot of experience, but even just having one in your deck, allowing you to draw three cards uh, that's fast might be worth considering putting in your deck. That way you can see more of your cards during the course of the game, because as soon as you hit that card, you're going to get almost an actionless there's no downside to to playing it where and you do other than drawing three cards and maybe hitting your weakness yeah the other type of card that you can upgrade into is uh permanence right so there's a f- there's a few cards not too many of them which instead of going into your deck uh they just they start the game on the field and they never get shuffled into your deck they never go away they just provide some kind of passive benefit so some of them have an effect during gameplay there's talents that let you spend money or do other things to increase your your stats during a test and then there's the new cards, Another Day, Another Dollar, and Studious, which give you extra money or an extra card at the beginning of the game. And those are generally pretty good. I mean, some are better than others, but they're better than they look to new players usually just because compared to normal cards, you don't have to spend an action to draw them and you don't have to spend an action to play them. You just get the benefit automatically. And they can't be interacted with either. Yeah, there's no way for them to get like knocked out of your hand by a treachery or, or wiped off the board. So they're 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 very good. I mean, not all of them all the time, but they're at least looking at. Actually, some of the better ones are now on the taboo list if you're playing with them, and they cost even more XP. So that's something to keep in mind. And then other ones that help you with upgrading your deck. So like adaptable arcane research, uh, Karen Zobal. You know, those have at least in the case of arcane research and the obol those have drawbacks that you have to be aware of but if you get them early they can help you a lot with kind of upgrading your deck and getting to a more powerful deck earlier than you otherwise would yeah and adaptable specifically i'm glad you mentioned it adaptable is a great card for anybody who either is kind of unsure about the cards that they put in their deck maybe or is looking to constantly change out cards for other cards trying new things or if you just kind of want to keep up with with the packs that are released as as cards are never really ever ceasing to be printed, uh, hopefully. And there will always be new cards to put in your deck. So maybe it might be an interest to you to get adaptables. That way you can keep on putting in the cards that you like more. 
Yeah, it can also, it can be a little bit overwhelming, I think, for a new player to have so many decisions to make between every scenario of getting to add more cards. But once you, and especially once you've played a campaign and you kind of know how the scenarios work, it can be very powerful to like swap in specific cards um, that help with specific scenarios. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so last small thing is you're not obligated to spend all of your XP between scenarios, right? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, there's also a couple permanents that give you like extra slots. Like Charisma gives you an extra ally slot. Relic Hunter gives you an extra accessory slot. Those are pretty good if your deck uh, has you know extra lots of al- multiple allies you want to play or multiple accessories. Uh, Charisma is particular uh, we like a lot because there's often you'll get maybe campaign allies that you want to add to your deck, and they're usually some of the strongest cards available. So you want to be able to play those in addition to whatever you have in your uh, deck already. But even in general, like having two allies on the board, the charisma is great. Yeah. And having that option available. Yeah, it's 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 maybe not like universally true, but like most decks, there's probably two allies, two different allies that are like worth card slots. So if you have charisma and getting to play both of them is pretty good. Yeah. And there's definitely good reason for that, right? Because allies are great. They not only help you with an effect that they might have, such as uh, Dr. Christopher Milan, for example, who gives you a static bonus intellect but also provides you money every turn free money yeah every every time you find an interesting bug he'll give you a dollar <laughs> exactly but also they have a health and sanity stat of their own which allows them to help you mitigate damage you know you can also think about them in that sense sometimes there are allies that are more expendable that allow you to do such sometimes there are allies that you want to keep around more so charisma is just a very effective card because of that reason because you might want to play Christopher Milan, but if you're Daisy, you might also want to play a research librarian who allows you to tutor out any book in your deck so that you can use it on Daisy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and lastly, just talking about XP again, you want to try to spend most of your XP if you can do so effectively to make your deck stronger for the next scenario. But uh, especially if you're saving up for something big, there's nothing wrong with saving some XP and waiting for the next scenario. You know, it does it does carry over. So if you have a couple of XP left over, Rather than spending it on a card that maybe isn't super great, but you just want to use it up, it might be better to hang on to it and uh, have more XP for the next scenario and you can get something that's stronger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think we've, we've covered a lot of stuff, right? I mean, maybe we'll do another one of these in the future on sort of uh, how, to, how to play uh, scenarios or something like that or how to strategize, but I think we've, we've covered most of the main basics of sort of, at least among ourselves, kind of how we think about making decks and choosing cards. And it's a good thing we did this before we built any decks on episodes, so people kind of knew our guidelines. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a good thing that we, uh, you know, three years after the game is out, it's a good thing. That we <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we really hope that this episode will help as you go forth and build Arkham decks. We hope that it'll, you know, make it into your, your listening retinue when you're introducing new players to the game and, and such. So how do you guys approach building decks when you want to uh, figure out how to put cards in your decks? Is there a specific favorite card that you love to upgrade into for any specific classes? Comment wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at miskatonicuniversityradio at gmail.com. And remember, if you have any questions you want answered, you can always email us and we'll talk about it in an upcoming Mailbag episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
All right, I need you guys to promise to never mention that I've actually read one of the novellas. It would make me a huge hypocrite, and um, people might start reading books, and that'd be very dangerous. So just yeah, make sure we edit that all out. Great. Zooks!